our advice is that's that's what we sort of live by. So we said, you know, we, we absolutely can't help you. So they went away, found a provider that would help them. Um, and then within nine months had an inquiry from HMRC and now they've got a two million pound tax bill. But I, I was approached a few weeks ago by someone who, a landlord on a residential mortgage who'd rented out their property and the lender had found out whether they'd done that through council tax records, whether they'd done it through TV licensing records or whether they'd done it through some other means, I don't know, but I know they run numbers and checks. You may never get caught. You may get caught on day one. And if you get caught, there's a problem. Why some people wouldn't speak to the correct person for the correct advice and listen to a a forum or, or a guy down the pub that says that he's done it before. Okay, so welcome along to another show on the Investor's Corner. Again today, we've got a fantastic guest, Andy and myself are hosting, and it's Amanda Perotton of Bell Howley Perotton, a legal firm specialising in landlord tax affairs, incorporations, joint ventures and other specialisms. So Amanda, firstly, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. First time podcast. First time podcast with you, but we run our own podcast. Fabulous. Well, so well, we can plug that. Idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good start. You'll find Amanda's podcast on our show notes if you listen to this and you are interested to hear more from them, is to get onto Amanda's podcast uh, if there's more information you ever want. So first, with 30 seconds in, one plug down. How are we getting on? Andy, let's, let's chat. What, what are we going to talk about today? So we are going to talk about today is um incorporation so one of the things that we look at when you're sort of a a landlord or an investor is is how you can incorporate your property portfolio mm. how to make it more tax efficient how you can build wealth um and sort of the joint venture side of stuff as as well so i'm really keen to get your thoughts on um your experience dealing with that are there any sort of top wins that we can that we can give to our investors and landlords on yes, how to how to do things on 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 their end. So yeah, a lot to discuss, a lot of interesting stuff that I'm sure that's going to come out of this podcast. So uh, yeah, so straight on to uh, straight into incorporation. Incorporation. Wow, okay. Let's go deep. Let's okay. go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if you're looking at somebody that's got property in their personal names. They're, one of the downsides is is that those properties form part of their estate for their inheritance um, and also they'll pay tax at their personal income tax rates. So, and obviously the, the big one for, for landlords is the Section 24, so they yeah. can't offset mm. their mortgage interest payments. So lots of clients look to incorporate their property portfolio to alleviate the Section 24 problem so they can then start to offset mortgage interest payments um, as a, as a, through their profits. Um, and then once you put those properties into a limited company, you can start to do some fairly basic wealth planning. You may have heard of family investment companies out in the market. You'll hear things referred to as freezer shares or growth shares or alphabet shares and the idea is is that that you look to the short medium and long term in order to gradually distribute your wealth over the period of your working life so that once you get to 55 you then are taking the income from your business or the business rather than having 
uh, a large capital sum attributed to your share capital because when you die, that's what will be then be valued for inheritance tax purposes. So there are numerous and many ways in which you can you can do that. The legislation for incorporations has been around for about 50 years, so it's nothing new. Um, but obviously the advent of changing the mortgage interest payments um, brought it into sharp focus for people because I think you'll find that uh, many of your listeners mm. potentially are already making losses on their portfolios on a monthly, if not annual basis. And with mortgage interest rates as they are at the moment, I think it is starting to really cripple people. Um, mm. Actually, I saw a stat this morning. Oh, we love a stat. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Let me, uh, let me read this out. So uh, CGT, so um, record amounts of capital gains tax were declared. Um, so the total amount of CGT liability for was 16.7 billion, 15% um, higher than the previous year. And a lot of that is down to the fact that landlords are actually selling yes. their portfolios, which you must find. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, we haven't got the stat, but it feels like a hundred percent of tenants are registering at the moment. And when yeah. you say, why are you moving? Because my landlord served me notice because yeah. they want to sell the property. And I want to question every single landlord, whether they're making the right decision or whether they're just jumping on a bandwagon, because a lot of landlords are selling because of the upcoming changes or so-called changes to section 21, the eviction notices rule and the rights for tenants, which we dispelled quite, dispelled quite a few of those with Liam on our pod a couple of weeks ago. So we don't think there's too much to fear from that. But as you quite rightly say, there's a lot of landlords who are now going from nice healthy profits on a monthly basis to losses. And I would throw a, another sort of guess at the wind that a lot of landlords have a reasonably high PAYE salary and if you've got two buy-to-lets and they're taking that rent gross as your income, a massive, massive percentage of landlords must be hitting that hundred to £120,000 income black hole where you're effectively paying double tax mm -hmm. to yeah. and losing your, your tax-free allowance, yeah. which is where the problem comes. You're paying the thick end of, what, 60% tax at that kind of yeah. income level. So... For your stereotypical landlord who might earn 80, 85K a year through work, have 20 to 30,000 pounds worth of income from buy to lets, two buy to lets that they bought over the last few years, at what point can they consider engaging someone to do something about their problem without having to go, oh, do you know what, sod it, I'll just sell it? Okay. So I think that. Um... With the advent of the changes in Section 24, I think it opened up the um, market for people to come in and look for loopholes hmm. to enable people to fit into a criteria that, as I say, was legislated on 50 years ago. So um, I think as a result of that, what you've created is almost an industry around incorporations instead of whether or not the clients are actually meeting the criteria. And um, the criteria for incorporating a property portfolio, for example, is governed by one case. 
and that's Ramsey. Yeah. Um, which everybody's very familiar with. Um, but I think that what people aren't so familiar with is the way in which that case operated and how it will operate for you. So one of the fundamental things that came out of that case is that as a landlord, you need to be actively involved in your portfolio for around 25 hours a week. So if you are working full time, it, that doesn't preclude you from meeting the criteria. But you have to think about how you are meeting that criteria. So if you are entirely passive and everything is uh, is outsourced, then the chances are, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, you're not actively involved in your business. You're outsourcing it. You're just passively receiving the income. But in those circumstances, it's unlikely that you're going, you're going to fall at the first hurdle. So what are you doing in within your business? Is it being run as a business? So in terms of the, the, the key element about the Ramsey case and incorporating it successfully is that you roll over the capital gain into the company. So you take the original base cost and it's effectively uplifted at the date that you incorporate which is a huge advantage to people. You know, one of the things that that landlords are are having difficulty with is that if you have started, um, you know, you started your portfolio in 2005, 2010, you know, 2005, you'll have gone, you'll have bought perhaps a little bit high, hit the recession in 2008, it's dropped. It's then, you know, sprung back up again. There's a lot of latent gain in those properties. Um, and if you sell and if you trigger that capital gains tax, um, the requirements are that that gain has to be paid or the tax has to be paid within 60 days. So for landlords, you know, you can't defer it. You can't pay it in installments. It has to be paid. You have to submit the return. Um, so that's that's quite a big ask. So actually meeting the criteria for Ramsey is essential before you do anything. So if you work full time and let's say your full time is nine to five thirty Monday to Friday, it doesn't mean that you can't fit that 20 to 25 hours within that working week as as, as well. Um, so if you're spending a lot of time at weekends, if you're constantly emailing, if you're looking for other properties, if you're undertaking some of the maintenance yourself, you could very easily demonstrate that you are contributing that amount of time each week. Um, but it needs to be recorded because what you need to allow for is what happens if HMRC asks you some questions about it. You have to be ready and able to justify why it is that you are going to qualify for the incorporation relief. Because as I said from those stats just now, you know, this is this is a big winner for HMRC. Mm. And they're not going to want you to just they're not, allow, they're not going to allow people just to hop yeah. from one fad to the next, are they? Correct. So um so I think that's one one element is that you need to make sure that you are contributing that amount of time. And if you're in a partnership, which I can talk about as well, but you know, you both need to be actively involved. The more passive you are, the less likely you're ever to gain any kind of relief. So if you can obtain incorporation relief, you will save yourself a significant amount of money. If you also need to think about the fact that if you transfer properties from your personal names into a company, for all intents and purposes, it's a market value sale. So there'll be SDLT payable on it. So stamp duty land tax comes into play. 
you will get something like multi-dwelling relief because of the portfolios moving all at the same time. But ideally, you want to not have to pay the stamp duty as well. Mm. The way that you can do that is use the partnership rules. Um, Put your portfolio into a reasonably uh, standard general partnership. um, And then that will, through a calculation, invariably qualify down to nil so that you can then not have to pay stamp duty land tax and you can roll over the gain. So you need to be able to get decent advice that enables you to move from one to the other. But I think one of the biggest problems, aside from those points, is your lending. Um, So what are the current mortgages, fixed terms, fixed rates? So you're then going to start looking at refinancing a portfolio. And for some landlords that are cash poor that could also present something of a problem for them and many are a lot of i mean we're sat in the southeast as 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 everybody knows where asset value is high but it doesn't necessarily mean that that individual is in inverted commas rich um i don't know the best (laughs) word for it you know at like with with just cash rolling around they may have had these properties for a number of years and they've gained value doesn't mean that there's there's cash sitting around in a pot to to do that side of things so that's the other i mean we obviously talk about i think it's probably every other week we have a mortgage broker on and we we absolutely hound them for for what's going on as Mm. we have done for the last 10 months or so i mean we've got a client going through an incorporation at the moment who is desperate to get it across the line and he's flipped onto the standard variable and he's currently paying 9.25 percent wow so he is hurting yes you know and it's it's a very very painful um position to be in so it it is causing quite a lot of hardship but i think if i can call it a myth is that you can't when you incorporate a property portfolio you need to move the whole lot at the same time it needs to transfer from the individual's personal names into the company name and if that happens then the mortgages need to change. Yeah. So the mortgages, so the portfolio needs to be refinanced, whether that's with a lender like Paragon who provide incorporation mortgages um, and they will allow it to to, to transfer. Um, Or if you just have to refinance the whole lot at the point that you actually transfer the properties. But a misconception is that, you know, avoid, don't avoid the mortgage question at your peril because if you you're immediately in breach of the terms of the lending aren't you as soon as you do it if you if you decide to be a bit blase about it from day one you're in breach of your mortgage I mean and I think that sort of several prospective clients we've we've chatted to said well you know how actually is your lender going to know but obviously as professional regulated people (laughs) 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 that's not something I'm going to answer they they have their ways and means (laughs) And how often they're checked, I guess, depends on the lender, doesn't it? But well, I, I, yeah. I was approached a few weeks ago by someone who, a landlord on a residential mortgage, who'd rented out their property and the lender had found out whether they'd done that through council tax records, whether they'd done it through TV licensing records or whether they'd done it through some other means, I don't know. But I know they run numbers and checks of percentages of their portfolios for their due diligence. Mm. 
you may never get caught. You may get caught on day one. And if you get caught, there's a problem. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I mean, a client of ours, as we were going through the incorporation, the properties had to be, re- obviously had to be, They were. I think they were, some of them were staying with one of the lenders. Um, and so they were revalued. And when the surveyor went round to do the valuation, they noted that rather than it being a three-bed house with one bathroom, it was a three-bed house with three bathrooms. So they'd made the alterations. I think they probably transferred it into an HMO or something mm. like that. And um, they'd made the alterations without the lender's consent. So the lender said, well, actually, when you financed with us three years ago, there was only one bathroom and now there's two bathrooms. You've done that without our consent. So we're going to red flag the account. So um, they red flagged it for a period whilst they waited. It, it wasn't that they stopped it or called in the debt, but they certainly it certainly meant that the incorporation was delayed by a further two months, which, you know, if you're paying significant If you're amounts, sat on that standard yeah. variable rate, yeah, it's a yeah. painful wait, isn't yeah. it? So, so I think that, um, and especially with, you know, media attention, HMRC, all their systems link up, um, I mean, we do a lot of stamp duty land tax um, advice for clients, things like MDR or uninhabitable properties. Um, and one client had, as you mentioned just now about the council tax. Well, if you've got if you've claimed multi dwelling relief um, and you're saying there's two separate dwellings here, then obviously the local authority are perfectly in the, within their rights to charge you council tax. And if you say, well, I've turned it back. Hmm. well, then they'll invoke the three-year rule and that means that they'll say, well, okay, we'll claw back the relief you claimed. So they are very much alive to people claiming reliefs. I think there's also, I think there's something like 1,200 reliefs available, tax reliefs are available. Um, and, uh, Go on, Andy, name them. Yeah. <laughs> no, not in this podcast. That will be on a separate yeah. podcast released uh, next week. <laughs> but, but, you know, they're supposed to be simplifying it. Yeah. You know, that, that's the whole The whole point is tax is supposed to be getting easier. But yeah. It's the same. It's, it's, yeah. it's like lettings regulations, isn't it? You can see, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of regulations, which is why we say to a landlord, use an estate agent to cover your back because mm. everything we do is fully signed off and regulated under the fact that we're we're ALA members. Same goes for taxes. I mean, how on earth is an individual supposed to know when they're filling out one of their forms what they're due? Mm. I, th- I yeah, think that, and a lot of these are self-assessed taxes. Mm. Um, so I, th- I think that that is a, a, a huge point is that you don't know what you don't know. No. And even with the best of intentions, you know, obviously the, the HMRC has an opportunity to um, to levy penalties against you. So failure to pay, they will automatically charge you interest um, and then they can decide what type of penalty they're going to um, levy against you for failure to pay the tax on time once they've assessed you to tax. Um, you know, that could be up to 100 percent if they believe that you've been, you know, egregious, if you've if you've really deliberately mm. decided to seek a way to avoid a tax. And, you know, coming back to incorporations again, for, for clients looking at that as an option, it's really important for you to be looked at personally. So how it affects you holistically, but not measured against anybody else. So any of your other landlord mates on the various forums you all listen mm. to we had a, a prospective client on this morning and you know rightly he was saying i'm just so confused about what's right and what's wrong you go on to all the different forums um and everybody says something slightly differently 
Yeah. I think I think you know if you treat people as individuals and you advise them on their personal circumstances and you seek advice on your personal circumstances it's a better much better way to go than thinking that you can fit into a one size fits all because tax advice just isn't like that and HMRC definitely are not like that. No, I mean land, landlord forums I think there's a place for them because what you don't want to feel is lonely Mm. Uh, and it can be a good place to take your recommendations and make a start with something to get get you into a wormhole somewhere but the the flip side of that is landlord forums are like today's dave down the pub yeah Mm. is is i've done this so you should do it too kind of mentality which leads a, a lot of people to do something and as you say no two people's circumstances are the same so you need to have some sort of independent advice that, yeah. that can that can provide you with a bit of a guarantee yeah. against what you're doing rather than yeah, user yeah. 1642 yeah. uh, who said it was a good <laughs> idea. Yeah. I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean we did have um in exactly that, you know, Dave done the pub situation. We had um, a guy that came to us for some advice and he had been told by Dave down the pub that actually he could spread the income out so you were saying right at the beginning of your introduction about you know somebody's getting up into the sort of over a hundred thousand bracket so they'd they'd suggested that they 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 spread the income from the portfolio between their wife and two sons so all the properties have been held in in father's name and he had amassed I don't know let's say 2025 I can't remember that but there was quite a large number of properties that they'd got so what he decided to do was divert the income so 25% to each of his sons 25% to his wife so that had brought everybody's well, the son's income tax obviously had, had come up, but I think they were sort of nineteen twenty at the time, um, and his had come down. Um, and during the discussion, we said, well, what have you done about the fact that you will have triggered capital gains tax on that? And he was like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. So I was <laughs> like, well, you've gifted 25% to your son and 25% to your other son. So at least 50% of your portfolio has been gifted to those two people. Obviously, there's dry tax charges between spouses, but you've you've triggered a capital gain on gifting because otherwise they're not entitled to the income. So you would have at that point had to have been had to have paid the capital gains tax, even though it's it's a gift. I think people naturally think that there, well, there's no money changed hands, mm. but it's obviously a market value transaction. Yes. Yeah, you can't just call it zero value. Yeah, so from 2016. Oh, we didn't hear from him again, but um, <laughs> but but I think that that's kind of an example of the fact that you know people you know I, I refer to it as the ripple effect. So if you're mm. going to drop a stone in, just be wary mm. of the ripples yeah. that are caused. Yeah. When when you come to sell that property, mm. your solicitor is going to mark that as mm. a property that's due capital gains. Yeah. Questions are going to get asked, yeah. and little red flags are going to pop up all over. Yeah, the HMRC of or where was the income for yes. the last fifteen years, and they'll be able to track that because yeah. the sons have obviously been paying income tax on the income that they've been receiving from, so they will actually be able to track it back to two thousand and sixteen. Now, again, are they going to pick it up? Who knows? But but I just think just be wary of the ripple effect. It's going to leave you sleeping a little bit light at night, right? Yeah, that it would, wouldn't that sick? <laughs> 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 That's why I just don't get like for for. Big investments like 
like property and or if you've got multiple properties why you just why some people obviously the majority of people would but why some people wouldn't speak to the correct person for the correct advice and listen to a a forum or or a guy down the pub that says that he's done it before but don't you think that's just come down to paying fees 100 percent. yeah you know i mean i I mean i I do think that's people don't i can do this for you it'll cost you this month i'll stuff that i'll go on i'll go on google yeah but in the long run it could cost you could cost you tens and tens tens of thousands 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 that you don't have yeah absolutely i mean i i think that um you know, for uh, for me as a solicitor, it took me six years to qualify. You know, if I could have got the answers out of Google, I would have, <laughs> I would have done. <laughs> you have know, chat GTP caught up on you yet? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it will. <laughs> um, but... You've just got to know what to type in at yeah. the moment to, to get the right answer. Yeah. That's the question, isn't it? Is whether yeah. you've asked the question in the correct way. Yes to get the correct answer and you don't know whether you're yeah. going to get the correct answer unless you're qualified exactly. at the moment. Exactly. And I just think like even with ChatGPT or whoever, it's the ripple effect. I mean, Dave down the pub may have the right answer in relation to income tax, mm. but he mm. hasn't thought about capital gains tax yeah, because he's yeah. not a chartered tax advisor, yeah. you know, or whatever profession or, you know, qualification you are. And I think that's the, but I think it's just fees. Somebody doesn't, and and you say to them, well, "It's going to cost you five thousand pounds." And they're like, "I mean, oh, I've got, I've got too many horror stories." But there's another client. Uh, they came to us for uh, an incorporation, both of whom were doctors. So coming back to the Ramsey test, you know, are you spending twenty twenty five hours a week? Um, they came to us and asked our advice, and we said, "This isn't going to work for you because you you're just not going to qualify." Um, and obviously, as regulated professionals. Of our advice is that that's what we sort of live by so we said you know we, we absolutely can't help you so they went away found a provider that would help them um and then within nine months had an inquiry from hmrc and now they've got a two million pound tax bill for their cgt um because they because they didn't <laughs> it's not, it's not <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want to pay you know, I don't know, £8,000. I, I can't remember what the fees were charged at the time, but it was, you know, or quoted at the time. But, and, and obviously, again, that's quite an extreme example. And, and, and perhaps people think, well, God, that's, you know, I don't have £2 million worth of gain. But even if you had £100,000 worth of gain mm. in your portfolio, you know, well, you're not prepared to pay 10% of that. You'd rather actually pay the £100,000 if, if you were to get caught. So, We've heard the horror stories and the reasons why people would do it. At what point, in your opinion, of building a portfolio or owning a portfolio, is it actually worthwhile incorporating over holding things in a holding property in a personal name? Okay, so I think that if you are listening and you are at the very, very beginning, then as things currently stand you would be as well to purchase that property in a limited company. Now, some people are put off by that because of the commercial rates mm-hmm. for lending. Um, so again, it's something that you need to weigh up in terms of the offset that you will achieve on your mortgage interest payments as against the additional interest payments that you will make as a result of it being a commercial mortgage. At the moment, I would say that 
you know, with somebody with a very small portfolio, it, it's definitely a balancing act. And it's something that you need to sit down and review and think about. And also what your short, medium, long term plan is. So, um, as I said, right from the beginning, if you have a limited company and you have shares, you can have a family investment company, which is just a straightforward limited company anyway, you can move those shares around. So it doesn't matter how many properties or investments, or you could do a joint venture with somebody else that involves management um, of properties. You could have a development arm, you can have a management arm, you could have a freehold arm. Um, but ultimately, you've only ever got one set of shares that you are managing and that you are wealth planning with. So right from the very beginning, you can put in place a very simple structure that will make things easier for you going forwards. If you're somebody that has um, a very small portfolio, you're right at the beginning. If you think I've got two or three properties and actually, is it going to be worth my while? Um, the amount of time that you spend, your plans for the future, those variables could make you think, I think I'm going to sit where I am. It may be that if you decide subsequently to buy future properties, you'd set up a company and start putting them into there so that you've got something, you're sort of across two stalls, as it were. If you have got, you know, a property portfolio of sort of five, six properties upwards, then I think it is worth you thinking about what you're going to do with them and how much it's costing you, how much time you spend on the portfolio and how much gain there is in it. Um, so I think that um, now obviously is a good time to be thinking about it with the increases in the rate rises. Inheritance tax is a, is a big consideration for everybody. Things are tight. Life is tight for people. And so their income is important because obviously, whilst it's in your personal name, every penny that comes into you as a sole trader or a partnership is taxed as, as personal income. If it's in a company, you're only going to pay tax on the money that you actually draw out. So obviously, if you draw dividends or if you draw an income, so you're able to manage your income much more easily within a company. So. I'm not sure if that's a, a woolly answer, and I haven't really probably said. But I think the the people who are listening are going to resonate with certain points yeah. of that, and I agree. If you're if you're just buying one property or two properties, it's negligible whether you ever see a benefit, unless this comes back to your why. And we always are, it always comes back to mm. why are you doing this? Why are you buying a property? Why are you renting a property out? you're looking at specifically I'm buying this property so I can hand it to my son. Now, incorporated, they could potentially become a shareholder of the business and you can transfer shares. You're not transferring the ownership of the property. So from where I'm sitting, you're not paying stamp duty, you're not paying these taxes because the property isn't changing hands. It still belongs to the company. You're transferring shares in the business. What you one thing I would say about the shares that you're transferring in the business, it's good to it's good to think about that before you incorporate. Because obviously once you incorporate, whether it's if it's a relatively new company, 
there's no value in the shares. So even so, gifting shares is the same as gifting property. They're going to attack, attract a capital gain. So you need to allocate and sort out the share structure before you start to load up the company yeah. with gaining assets effectively. Um, but it's certainly the case that you can update the articles of association. You can make them bespoke for your family so that shares are kept within the family unit. You can allow for things, you know, d divorce, bankruptcy. Um, if your son or daughter, I don't know, has a gambling habit and you're sort of anxious about the way that they're going to own those shares, though that can be allowed for if you want to make charitable gifts, if you want to. We've had uh, clients where shares have been allocated to their church or to some other community project that they've been involved in. So it's very, very flexible and it's very malleable to, again, sit in with however a client wants to, um, you know, manage the rest of their life, really. But um, I think in terms of income, one of the key problems with holding it in a partnership or personally is that you will, irrespective of what's happening to that income, you will pay income tax on it. Yeah. Whereas that's what you can start to manage when, when it goes into a company. I think the revenue, what the revenue are concerned about as well is something that they call artificial steps. So um, if you suddenly have a company that you incorporate into, the revenue are looking at that and saying, well, we think this is an artificial step. So what is the commercial reasoning behind this? So they are looking a lot more closely at effectively artificial situations um, arising. But certainly, I mean, there are, there is a lot of positive things about having a business structure, having it as a limited company, being able to enter into joint ventures, being able to create a, you know a group relief you can offset losses you can transfer properties you can grant leases you can do all sorts of things within a company structure that you can't do in personal names but it does come back down to the individual and what are your best intentions for the next sort of five to six years so let's talk about joint ventures as you just mentioned it it's always been something of a probably a a mystery to your everyday Mr. and Mrs. Smiths who are who are on the street. But an increasing number of our landlords, property investors are in the trades, been very successful over the last three or four years because there's been so much money in the economy spent. Where did as a as a specialist in incorporation and tax, where do you sit on on joint ventures? Who's doing them and why? Okay, so joint ventures are a fantastic tool. Um, they are fantastic for people to effectively undertake a project, a development, um, a purchase even, um, where they don't necessarily have the funding for it. So they'll get together with an investor and the investor will seed the investment and they'll say, well, okay, that's great. You put in your 300,000 and leave the rest to us. So, you know, I spend a reasonable amount of time drafting up joint venture agreements, which enable clients to have that flexibility, which provides for the way in which the project will be managed, um, the likely way that the profits will be split, 
Um, and again, that those joint ventures, they can be owned, the shares in that joint venture, if that joint venture is a limited company, so three Acacia Street Limited, you know, the shareholders can be your family investment company and the investor or the investor's company. So they work, they work really, really well. Um, obviously, with any agreement, if it's 50-50, that always presents <laughs> some problem because you'll always, you know, be concerned about a deadlock um, and what's going to happen in those mm. circumstances and how it's going to operate. Um, and ultimately, you know, trying to buy the other 40% or 50%, 60% out, you know, it's it's never straightforward. But I think having a really decent joint venture agreement in place sets the tone for the way in which the development's going to happen. So, Obviously, it's like really exciting and you've got a prospect of, you know, making a reasonable amount of money on a property that you've identified or somebody's found for you. Somebody's come along and said, yeah, well, I can put the money in. And, you know, and obviously with any relationship, while it's working, it's fantastic. Mm. You know, yeah. my job, obviously, <laughs> is, to, <laughs> is to try to accommodate when it doesn't work. Mm. Um, but I think I think that they're a, a, a tremendously useful tool they can get a bit overused, but I think all you need to think about it when you really boil it down, it's just an agreement between two parties, whether they are two limited companies, um, two individuals, it's just an agreement. This is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. And I think the more detail you can put in it up front, the more you can demonstrate your intention on how you think the development's going to go, um, I think the easier and the better it will be. Yeah, it's an interesting one because everyone... I think it's it's in, it's in, it's excitement and and that kind of thing which draws people around and the amount of things that drop across my desk that I look at and go there's money in that but it's at such a level that I don't have the ability to go and do anything about it, yeah. it and then it just passes straight over that's where those sorts of things give someone an option where they where they're in an advantageous position, whether it be an estate agent or a builder or someone who finds land or someone who owns land but can't do anything with it mm -hmm. rather than just purely selling it on mm -hmm. is actually being able to do it for themselves. Mm -hmm. But normally the excitement means people just, everyone believes the world's rosy and we're all going to get on <laughs> and we're all going to make loads of money and we'll shake hands at the end. Right. And yeah. I'd, I'd love to know the amount of times, especially God, just even just having builders extending your house, it never goes mm. to the plan that, no. that someone gives you, does it? It always overruns. It always goes over budget. There's always something that you have to go back on and, having some sort of terms of agreement can only give you a framework to to, to point out if that yeah. happens. Yeah. And I, I just think as well that, um, that they, you know, an, another consideration that sometimes depends on the, on the seller, but you could also, also, we look at options. So that provides an element of security without you having to put all your eggs in one basket from day one and purchase it. And it will also give you time to see whether or not the planning that you think is going to uh, be effective in this particular 
you know, scenario is going to work, if there's going to be additional problems, if you're going to have to get additional surveys or um, the costs in terms of, you know, what the site was previously used for. Um, so options are another thing that I think work, that work quite well. But I think that clients also have to understand that you're going to have to financially invest in this in order to see whether or not it's going to work. Yeah. And that comes back to the fees. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, you know, if somebody wants an option agreement or if they want a joint venture agreement or if they've decided to go together on a shareholders agreement, they're going to change the articles of association. You know, if you want to put those elements in place, then you're going to have to pay somebody to do it. And so it may be that you, you know, it's something that comes across your desk. You've got to be prepared to maybe invest 10, 12, 14,000 into seeing whether or not this project is a go. Yeah. If it is a go, it could make you 300,000 pounds. But if you're not, or you don't, you know, you don't want to invest that money, then it's going to expose you potentially. Um, down the line and I and I think that that's that's something that you know you almost need to in your mind set aside a budget for your research and development on whatever projects you're working on for that year and you've got to be prepared to say well okay I'm, I might spend 25,000 on this but in the grand scheme of thing over the course of the year I've actually made 400,000 or whatever it is I yeah don't know. maybe you, made 70,000 but you've you've offset your costs yeah, you you've got if you if you put that money into something, it goes it goes nowhere. You 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 take it out of the one that it did go mm. somewhere in out of out of that profit. So for every one that you you push the button on, there might be two or three that that just never happen yeah. because of like you say the the issues with development and planning and options and that kind of thing. And if you're in a group, if if you've got a, a group structure in place, so you've you know you've got your top company and your various joint ventures or other elements underneath, you know if that particular joint venture does lose you fifteen thousand, then you can offset it against profits in one of your other, um, you know, joint ventures or somewhere you know within that group structure. But you know if you, if you don't want to pay somebody to put a group structure in place, you can't offset it. <laughs> mm. So my story keeps rolling yeah. round yeah, again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's no, it's it's, it's it, but it's the it's the truth in pretty much every walk of life, mm. isn't it? You you either roll the dice and take a massive gamble. If it comes off, great, all power to you. Well done. You've you've beaten the system, um, mm. and you might spend a few years looking over your shoulder, wondering whether someone's going to come back at you. Or you protect yourself and do it do it properly. It doesn't matter what what line of work, what line of investing that is. It's it's the same across the board. Mm. You should always there's, there's hundreds of thousands of people who do their own tax returns because they won't spend three hundred quid on a on an accountant doing a basic tax return. Mm. For all they know, they're not claiming one of the what one thousand two hundred allowances yeah. and reliefs <laughs> that they could do, yeah. Yeah. which would more than cover the yeah. cost of, of of a tax return. It's certainly something I've learned since setting up my own business over the last three or four years that sometimes it's easier just to pay someone, pay an expert in their field rather than trying to build it yourself. Mm. I mean, slightly negatively, but at least one of the advantages of paying an expert is that their advice is going to be covered by their uh, professional indemnity insurance. Yes. You know, I mean, we carry five million per claim. 
So that's also what you're paying for. I mean, you're paying for the expertise and you're paying for a regulated professional. And, you know, if if you get it wrong, which... <laughs> Yeah, I'm not doing my own gas certificates yeah. <laughs> on, on landlord properties. I'm, I'm going to let someone else yeah, sign absolutely. that off. Yeah, you know that's that's how basic I see it. Is mm. is yeah, I could go out and get qualified to do gas certs to, for and save myself ninety quid a, a shot on on, yeah. on provisions. Why? Mm. Like you're just putting yourself out there to to be shot at and make mistakes. When, mm. as you say, you're covering someone else can cover the liability. Mm. If, if the HMRC come after you, go my accountant yeah <laughs> and leave it at that i mean but, but also you you find that you can spend your time is better spent doing the things that you excel at so if you are fantastic you know identifying a bargain in terms of land or you can see the potential in something well spend all of your time yeah. doing that because that's where you're going to make your money yeah and speaking frankly i never want to have a conversation with hmrc no none ever zero no. i don't really want my accountant to either so <laughs> but it's i i don't want to come across that because i know i'm going to get forensically searched if they find one thing they go oh so you own this business and this business and this business open the books mm. yeah because like you say yeah. there's that ripple effect of yeah. well you've done one thing so yeah. there's a good chance we're going to find something else here so we mm. might as well spend some time mm. yeah yeah so Excellent. So I think we've covered everything that we wanted to cover, Amanda. So thank you again for coming in. Really appreciate you taking the time to, to come and see us today. There's some great stuff um, in that podcast, some stuff that I didn't know, um, some stuff that I'll take away and go and learn on now, especially the 1,200. If anyone can name them in the show notes, that'll be a, that'll be a good list. Um, but no, thank you again. One um, last plug for Amanda's podcast. Yeah, yes. Property Planet. Yes, thank you. Good name. Property Planet. Love it, love it. But yeah, all the details will be in the show notes. So Amanda, thank you again. And You're thank you for good. listening um, on the Investors Podcast. And uh, see you next week. Why have we made the Investors Corner podcast, Ian? I think online at the moment, there is just way too much noise, waffle and nonsense. Everyone's got an agenda. So the goal was to make a podcast for people that want to invest money in property or other areas where there's no waffle, there's no nonsense, there's no agenda. It's opinion led, but it's an honest opinion. And it might not be the right answer, but we're going to share it. So on the podcast, we're going to supply people with access to mortgage brokers, financial advisors, planning experts, development consultants, everything around the property industry and the wider fields. Yeah. So if you're looking at investing in the future, you know that just having an income from your employer or from your business is not enough to give you the life that you want down the line. We're going to hopefully give you some of those answers that will give you the solutions you need for the future. So please hit the subscribe button. The more subscribers we get, the better guests that we can get on and the more people that we can reach. So hit subscribe. <laughs>